Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. And first of all, Happy New Year, everybody. Today's episode is the first update of a pre-existing episode that I've done. As such, if you haven't listened to the e-cigarette episode from about this time two years ago, I'd strongly recommend going back to it now. Why have I chosen this one to update? Well, a couple of reasons. E-cigarette research has really come on in the past two years since I recorded that episode, but it's still a topic where there's massive disagreement among researchers about how to interpret the evidence that we have. Also, I was able to speak to Professor Linda Bold, a fantastic and knowledgeable researcher from the University of Edinburgh, about what we know, about why the USA and the UK have such differing policies around e-cigarettes and what the implications of that might be. And we also chat about Juul, a new device that's taken, well, it's not that new anymore, but a device that's taken the US by storm, but hasn't really picked up over here, despite being available. And we also talk about whether nicotine is actually harmful. It's a pretty packed episode, so I'll stop talking now, but please enjoy Linda Bold and I saying why, again, to e-cigarettes. So I'm joined by uh, Linda Bold, who is an expert in e-cigarettes. Could I just get you to briefly introduce yourself? So my name is Linda Bold. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Edinburgh, and I also have a chair in behavioural research for cancer prevention at Cancer Research UK. And you're particularly expert in e-cigarette research, aren't you? Well, I've been working in smoking cessation, nicotine and tobacco research for about 20 years um, and obviously became interested in e-cigarettes when they um, entered the UK market. And at the time, I was chairing NICE guidance uh, on tobacco harm reduction. So that was really relevant to e-cigarettes. And yeah, I've been very interested in them ever since. Now, you mentioned NICE guidelines there. So NICE are the organisation who help the NHS decide what medications to prescribe. Is that right, based on the evidence? That's right. The NHS, local government and other organisations, what can they um, say to the public and patients about different services? And um, also, as you say, what drugs can they prescribe or um, provide? So, yeah, not just medications, but also treatments, um, behavioural research, behavioural interventions in particular, which are relevant to smoking cessation, you know, things like counselling and support as well. NICE has public health guidance. It's a specific area of guidance for them, which is about prevention largely. Um, and yeah, they, that they view as important for the NHS and other services. 
Now, we've already done an episode about e-cigarettes specifically, but can you just give us a quick overview of what e-cigarettes are for people who haven't listened to that episode? Absolutely. So they were patented in China in 2004, uh, developed by a pharmacist whose father and himself were trying to stop smoking and he thought there must be a new way. And that's how the technology was developed based on previous prototypes. In the UK, we began to see them emerge on the market around 2010. And Really, quite simply, um, they're devices which vary a lot in terms of their characteristics, but they have a common set of core functions, if you will. They often contain nicotine, which is uh, contained within propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin. Um, there's a battery which, which heats that. Um, and when the user takes a puff, it creates or emits a vapor. And most devices, all devices have that in common. Uh, importantly to emphasize that e-cigarettes do not contain tobacco. So they contain nic nicotine in most cases, but not always. Um, they also contain flavorings, which are made up of a number of compounds. Uh, I think the reason why people use them, well, there's a number of reasons, but most people use e-cigarettes to stop smoking or to reduce their smoking. So they are an alternative and they are really around tobacco harm reduction. So um, encouraging people to stop using tobacco and when it's burnt, combustible tobacco, that's what causes the harm. And so e-cigarettes deliver nicotine, but without that combustion and um, with far fewer toxicants than in tobacco. So the episode that I've done before on Say Why to Drugs about e-cigarettes was uploaded in January 2017. So that's nearly two years ago now. How much has changed since then in terms of what we know about e-cigarettes? So, for example, do we, has much changed about what we know about who's using them or about what we know about the risks from them or the potential benefits from them? Well, since that last uh, podcast for Say Why to Drugs, there are a number of things that have changed. The first thing is there's been a lot more research that's published. Um, there are literally dozens of papers produced in a number of journals on e-cigarettes every single month. Um, so we do know more than we did then. Just in terms of prevalence in the UK specifically, we haven't seen a big increase in the use of e-cigarettes since 2017. It's remained about, uh, it's remained fairly steady. In terms of the general population, adults, it's about 5%. It's around 18% um, of smokers. Um, but overall, uh, the numbers have grown a little bit. So we have um, just over 3 million adults now in uh, in England, sorry, in the United Kingdom, who are using uh, e-cigarettes. And the other thing that's changed is that in the early years of use, there were more smokers who were vaping than there were ex-smokers. And we've seen that shift in the last couple of years. So we now have more ex-smokers who are vaping than people who are continuing to smoke. About 52% of e-cigarette users are ex-smokers. That's about 1.7 million people. And we think that's arisen because gradually what's happened is people who were dual using, using e-cigarettes and smoking, have stopped smoking. So they've, many of these people will have stopped smoking while they were using an e-cigarette. So that's one thing that's changed. The second thing in terms of the evidence is that we've had a number of very important studies that have been published. And I, I guess the one that stands out for me was the first longer term study looking at uh, toxicant exposure for people who were vaping. And that was a, a study... Uh, led by researchers at University College London, funded by Cancer Research UK. And they looked at people who'd been vaping on average for around 16 months. And they compared people who were vaping and smoking, people who were only vaping, only smoking. And then they also looked at nicotine replacement therapy users. And what they found was that toxicant exposure in the people who switched completely from smoking to vaping was very significantly reduced. Volatile organic compounds, uh, tobacco-specific nitrosamines, 
um, some of the other chemicals uh, that are found in tobacco and also in e-cigarettes were at very low levels in the people who'd switched to vaping. So that provided support, I suppose, for some of the previous estimates we'd had suggesting that vaping was significantly less harmful than smoking, and that study certainly backs it up. Um, I guess other things we've seen in the last few years are developments in the types of devices that are available. Um, and I know we're going to go on to talk about the new products, uh, often called fourth generation products. And then I guess, finally, we're also seeing longitudinal data, particularly from the US coming out, just looking at how long people vape for, whether people stop vaping. And what we are seeing is that there are very variable patterns of use. How people use e-cigarettes um, does vary significantly. But we are seeing that it, some people continue to use for a very long time and some people stop vaping altogether after they quit smoking. Um, so we'll need those longer term studies. I guess the final thing is we did see an update of the Cochrane Review uh, looking at e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. No new trials published uh, since 2014, but still suggesting that e-cigarettes are about as effective for smoking cessation as nicotine replacement therapy. And um, I suppose a watch this space is that we expect a further large trial on e-cigarettes for smoking cessation to be published in the next few weeks, which will be very exciting. Oh, wow. So maybe we've done this a couple of weeks early. <laughs> we'll have to do a third update. <laughs> So there's a few things that you mentioned while you were speaking then that I want to come back to. So first of all, you said that it's just sort of switched over to being more than half of e-cigarette users are now ex-smokers rather than being sort of dual users, for example. So what you said, is it 51% who are yeah, now 52% are now 52. Yeah. So the rest of those people... I'm assuming, just from knowing the literature quite well, that the vast majority of the other 48%, oh, these numbers are familiar, um, <laughs> the 48% here are broadly or most likely to be dual users. How common is vaping in people who've never, never smoked at all? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The vast majority of those others are people who are smoking and vaping at the same time, either to cut down their smoking or to quit smoking. The proportion of adults who vape who've never smoked a cigarette in their lifetime is tiny. It's less than half a percent, we know from the smoking toolkit data in England. Um, and that hasn't changed in the last few years. So we have not seen um, a rise in the proportion of never smokers who vape. There are those people, they do exist, but actually there is a similar uh, number to never smokers who use nicotine replacement therapy. So it's very rare either to use NRT or to vape if you've never smoked. Yeah, and I mean, from having run a study recently where <laughs> I've tried to recruit these people, I can vouch that they're very, very difficult to find. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so what about then youth prevalence figures? So we've talked about adults who are using e-cigarettes to help them quit smoking or to reduce their smoking. But one of the things that's often sort of cited as a bit of a worry about e-cigarettes is are they introducing a young generation who are very unlikely to smoke to a kind of not smoking but a smoking-like behaviour, a behaviour that involves potentially consuming nicotine? What, what are we seeing in terms of young people? Well, I think we're seeing a, um, a changing picture and it's different in different countries across the world. So that's the first thing to say. Um, mm -hmm. But if we just and of course, we should emphasize that that are there are over 30 countries that completely ban vaping altogether. So uh, the UK and the US and some other countries are unusual in that we, we do permit them. But if, if we just focus on the countries which 
perhaps do the most research in this area, which is the UK and the US. Um, in the UK, amongst young people, we have a number of surveys. Um, we published a paper in 2016, 2017, which tried to pull these data together, but I'll just refer to the data from 2018, the spring of 2018, which are the most recent. And the survey I'm talking about here is conducted by YouGov for Action on Smoking and Health. It's called the Smoke-Free Great Britain Youth Survey, and it, it, it contains data from several thousand young people aged 11 to 18 across Great Britain, so excludes Northern Ireland. So what we see for the 2018 data there is that around 12% of teenagers have used an e-cigarette once or twice, so they've tried it, in other words. Only 2.5% report that they vaped at least uh, once in the last month, and a very small proportion, just under 2%, report that they vape at least weekly. Um, so if you were to talk about current vapors, 11 to 18 year old, it's about 16%. That brings together the numbers um, who've used in the last month or are using regularly. But just to emphasize the patterns of weekly use, so very regular use, still in 2018 are very low, they're less than 2%. So that's overall for 11 to 18 year olds. And then when you drill down into smoking status for UK youth, you'll see that um, the vast majority of kids who are vaping are already smoking. You know, over 90% of teenagers who smoke have tried an e-cigarette and a significant proportion are vaping and smoking. But amongst kids, teenagers who've never smoked in their lives, the rates of uh, regular use of e-cigarettes in the UK are still tiny. Again, they're less than half a percent like they are in adults. Um, so those are our data. And, you know, we have seen an increase in experimentation, definitely, in the last few years, and some increase in um, more regular use overall. Uh, but not, not huge increases. Now, the pattern in other countries um, is a bit different. There are some countries where it looks very similar. So New Zealand, for example, their data look very similar to ours. I've recently seen data from New Zealand. Um, the big difference seems to be the US and perhaps to a lesser degree, Canada. And there we have seen a, a really big increase, certainly in the last 12 months, in the proportion of young people who vape. Um, and there's a couple of U.S. surveys, the National Youth Tobacco Survey and also a survey called Monitoring the Future. Um, and they certainly show that amongst, for example, high school students, that's ninth to 12 grades, so you're probably looking there at about 15 to 18 year olds. 11.7% um, of those teenagers had vaped um, in the past 30 days in 2017, and that actually went up to almost 21% by 2018. So that's a big jump. It's an increase of 78%. Yes. So that's worrying. And the Monitoring the Future survey actually shows a similar pattern, which I think suggests to us that this is real. In the 12th graders, so that's just the 18, 17, 18-year-olds 18 in Monitoring the Future, just over a third of them reported that they'd vaped at least once in the past year. So that's ever use. Um, and that was up about 27% from the previous year. And amongst 18-year-olds in terms of had they vaped in the last month, the past 30 days, which is what the Americans define as current use, it was 11% in 2017. It went up to 21% in 2018. So you've got two surveys there showing quite a big increase in prevalence of vaping um, in the US. The frustrating thing is that these American surveys don't break this down by smoking status, at least not in their publicly available reports the way that we do in the UK. Wow. So that is this the first time that the UK and the US rates have diverged by such a large amount? 
As far as I'm aware, I mean, the figures for vaping in the US actually went down slightly in around 2016, 2017, but then we've seen this big jump, whereas ours have sort of gradually gone up a little bit. The difference is actually, I'm just looking, I wrote down some comparative figures. The differences actually are not really huge. Um, where did I write down? Yeah, so if we just compare the 18-year-olds, in, in the UK, amongst just the, I, I extracted the data for just 18-year-olds from that ASH YouGov uh, mm -hmm. survey, and in terms of ever use, 22.7% of 18-year-olds in the UK had ever used an e-cigarette. And in the US, it was 37%. So it is higher, um, but it's not, you know, a trillion miles away from one another, yeah. those two figures. And in terms of past 30-day use, so monthly use in the past month amongst 18-year-olds, that's where it seems to differ. In the UK, it's only about 5%. And in the US in 2018, it was 21%. So there are definitely differences. We're definitely seeing a divergence. It is a single year. So we need to be really cautious about that. But I'm sure we'll go on to talk about maybe the developments in the marketplace and what kind of devices might or factors and policy factors might be driving these uh, these differences between the US and the UK. Yeah, I think this is something we should talk about now, in fact. <laughs> so I um, I know that there's, there's differences in terms of regulatory frameworks around e-cigarettes between the UK and the USA. There's a particular device, isn't there, that's been cited certainly in the States as being a real worry in terms of youth e-cigarette use and it's the sort of the device that's kind of held up as this great big worry and that's a jewel so that's j-u-u-l so what what is a jewel so these are a new um new category of, of vaping devices vaporizers we often talk about first second and third generation e-cigarettes or vaporizers you know the cigalites followed by the ones that look like fountain pens followed by the ones that have a sort of tank or can be modified so they're called mods these are pod devices. They're, they use little capsules. Juul is not a single product. There are, other, there are other products in this category as well, but Juul certainly seems to have hit the headlines and also has, in terms of a brand, um, has a very significant pro proportion of the US market. So it's been very successful. It's an independent company, not owned by a tobacco company, certainly not at the moment. Why is it different? It's different because it looks different. It looks like a USB drive. It's a, it's a small, discrete device, oblong-shaped. Um, doesn't look like the previous generations of e-cigarettes at all. So that's the first thing. As I say, you can just easily change the pods or the capsules, which contain um, nicotine, um, flavorings, propylene glycol, etc. So it's very easy to change them and, and replace them. But the more distinctive element of Juul, of course, is um, how the nicotine is delivered. Uh, Juul uses nicotine salts. Um, so we can talk about the nicotine content in Juul in a moment, but it's really the formulation that differs. So nicotine salts seem to, the pH is different, and they seem to deliver nicotine um, to the body, to the brain more rapidly, or certainly into the bloodstream would be the more correct thing to say. So nicotine is absorbed more rapidly into the bloodstream through this type of delivery than through previous types of e-cigarettes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So... Is this kind of similar to the way that cigarettes, particularly, because the pH of, of cigarettes is different, so you have to draw the smoke into the lungs to absorb it, and that's why the nicotine gets into the bloodstream so quickly. Is it kind of a similar process to that? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a number of, well, there's very little research, first of all, mm. to emphasize in terms of at the cellular level, what happens when Juul is used. And certainly my colleague, Maciek Gonowicz and others in the US who are looking at this, and I know Maciek has a couple of theories or you know, he's given put some thought into uh, how the nicotine salts deliver nicotine and, and how the body absorbs nicotine. But what we do know in terms of the sort of pharmacokinetics of it is in terms of the delivery the kind of spike of delivery you get from Juul looks much, much more like a tobacco cigarette. It's much yeah. more rapid. So you're definitely getting nicotine more quickly and a higher amount of nicotine into the bloodstream um, from Juul, more like a cigarette than previous generation devices. So part of the reason that I wanted to record this podcast with you is because just the, over the last couple of days on Twitter, I've seen loads and loads of people sharing this soundbite that one jewel contains the same amount of nicotine as 20 cigarettes. Now, I know that in the UK, there are limits on the nicotine content that an e-cigarette or the e-cigarette liquid can have. So is this specific to the US or is it is it accurate at all? Well, it's not an accurate statement. That's the first thing to say. But let's let's focus on that statement in a moment. Let's first talk about the actual nicotine content. So that does differ. As I say, the thing to remember with Juul is it's not so much the nicotine content that matters. It's the formulation. Mm -hmm. It's the delivery. But leaving that aside, there's a there is a big difference. So in the jewel pods in the US, they are permitted to use a higher nicotine um, concentration than we are in the UK. So we have a, a, a limit in the UK, which was being imposed on us by the European Union, the tobacco product, EU Tobacco Products Directive implemented in May 2016, which states that uh, our products cannot contain more than 20 milligrams per milliliter of nicotine. Um, in the US, that's not the case. So Juul and indeed other e-cigarette products have a, a far higher nicotine concentration. It can in, go up in some cases to, for example, 50 milligrams per milliliter, etc. So it's much higher. So what you see with the Juul products in the US, they come actually in different nicotine strengths, but you can obtain Juuls that have a far higher amount of nicotine in that replaceable pod or capsule than you could get in the UK. And Juul is available in the UK. It became available uh, this summer in July 2018, I believe, but the nicotine concentration is different. So that, that is a difference. <clears throat> in terms of this, um, this statement that a jewel pod is equal to 20 cig cigarettes of nicotine, which is, I think, what you've been hearing about, Susan, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, that seems to, and my colleague Michael Siegel, Professor Michael Siegel at, in, at the University of Boston School of Public Health, has, has really recently written about this. So my understanding is that this statement has come from a number of different places. It's come from it's been used by the Truth Campaign, which is a, a not-for-profit uh, organization in the U.S. Uh, who've done a lot of excellent work over the years on smoking prevention. It's also been disseminated by the Centers for Disease Control, who collect the NYTS data and, and have an important role to play in the U.S. and in e-cigarettes and other public health topics. And we've also seen it, I think, replicated in newspapers, in magazines, and in many other places. It is actually not true. So I think the problem with the statement is that it assumes that, you know, that Juul has more nicotine and therefore is more addictive than smoking a pack of cigarettes. Um, but my understanding is that actually isn't the case. So the average Juul pod actually has about 40 milligrams of nicotine in the US, I understand. And your average single cigarette has 12 milligrams of nicotine commonly. So actually a Juul pod only has the same amount of nicotine as three cigarettes. So I'm not quite sure where that's come from. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's hard to compare as well because of the way that you use a, a e-cigarette is very different to the way that you smoke a tobacco cigarette. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of graze when you're vaping, don't you? You take puffs more frequently and you, you don't finish vaping the way that you finish a cigarette. I think it's highly unlikely that a teenager is going to use a whole jewel pod, you know, in one sitting. And anyway, they're not absorbing the same amount of nicotine as 20 cigarettes. But the really worrying thing about this statement is it sends the message that it's better off smoking. And it sends the message that it, you're better off smoking 19 or 20 cigarettes than using Juul, which is just bizarre. And, you know, fundamentally, from all the evidence we have on on vaporizers and e-cigarettes generally, just not true. So, you know, if, if organizations whose, whose objective is youth smoking prevention are using this statement, they could actually be inadvertently encouraging young people to smoke instead of vape. And that's bad. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of brings me on to my next question, which is, is nicotine harmful? Well, again, the US and the UK seem to differ on this. So having chaired the, the NICE Tobacco Harm Reduction Guidance, which we discussed at the beginning, you know, we spent two years looking at the evidence on nicotine. And we came very clearly to the conclusion that nicotine is not the harmful substance in tobacco cigarettes. It is not carcinogenic. Um, you know, it raises the heart rate, uh, blood pressure, etc. Um, it's a stimulant, but uh, it's not, it's certainly not harmful when you separate it from the tobacco. Um, and that's why we prescribe nicotine replacement therapy, you know, a licensed medicine to people who are trying to stop smoking. And in fact, in the UK, we prescribe nicotine replacement therapy to pregnant women who are trying to stop smoking. Nicotine is addictive. It can be addictive. It can be dependence forming, although it depends how it's delivered. The mode of delivery is really important. Um, most e-cigarettes don't look like they're as addictive as cigarettes, even if they contain nicotine. But the perspective on nicotine in the US is different. And the big focus in this whole debate about youth vaping has been the statement that nicotine harms the developing brain. And if you look at the Center for Disease Control fact sheets on young people and vaping, many other organizations the National Center for Health Research, etc. And they've all said that nicotine is really harmful to young people. Now, we can maybe go on to talk about whether that's the case or not. I think that that evidence is, is very limited and I can maybe explain why. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be really interesting to explore that in a bit more detail. So if you look at the literature and, and when you look at what the CDC and these organizations are citing to support this statement, they're most commonly citing the 2018 Surgeon General's report on e-cigarettes and young people. But if you delve into that report, the references they cite to support the statement that nicotine harms the developing brain are from rodent studies. They're rodent model studies, pre-clinical research done with rice, mice or rats, where you do definitely see that nicotine alone, separate from cigarettes, has an effect on the developing brain in those animals and, and can also, for example, harm uh, the, the fetus. And so that's part of the reason why in the US it's very, well, it's unusual for pregnant women to be prescribed nicotine replacement therapy. So that evidence is valuable and it might point to harm but it's problematic because if you look at the evidence on uh, nicotine in mice and rats, you also see that uh, in those animals, nicotine is clearly a tumor promoter. It helps develop uh, cancer tumors. Uh, and we don't have that evidence in humans. And we prescribe nicotine replacement therapy to people who have cancer who are trying to stop smoking. So I think we need to be really cautious with the evidence uh, from, from mice and rats and not assume that it does apply to humans. What we don't have is studies that 
look at what happens when you separate the nicotine from the tobacco and give it to a child or a young person and then follow them up over years because that type of research would probably be very unethical and that's why it doesn't exist. What we do have is studies of youth uh, who smoked and there we see differences in terms of their impulse, their attention, their learning, their mood. There are differences between the smoking and the non-smoking youth. But what we don't know is, is it the nicotine that causes those differences to the adolescent brain or is it other things in tobacco? So I think there needs to be a debate about this statement that nicotine harms the adolescent brain. I just don't think we actually know. And I think the final point just to say on that, Susie, is that in the UK, nicotine replacement therapy can be prescribed to young people as young as 12 who are smoking and are trying to stop. Um, so if we in the UK believed that nicotine was the problem, we wouldn't have these kinds of policies or make that type of medication available. And I think this brings us on to what we as sort of researchers are trying to do is to help policymakers maybe in terms of promoting harm reduction. So we can see how nicotine replacement therapy is a harm reduction tactic, given that we we know so much about what is harmful about tobacco smoking. The nicotine might be, it might be harmful, we don't have very much evidence, and if it is harmful, it's not the most harmful thing about smoking. So we can see how nicotine replacement therapy is a kind of harm reduction strategy, and I would say that e-cigarettes would fit in this as well. But how do we as researchers kind of navigate this field where there's complicated and contradictory and in fact just very little evidence? I think it is difficult and I think it's difficult to engage with policymakers on this because countries differ in their regulations and the kind of studies that are being produced is not so much the results as their interpretation. So your average politician sitting in the UK or Canada or Australia or wherever is seeing the same headlines from studies from the US, etc. I mean, just this week, you know, a very prominent um, US tobacco control researcher made a very clear statement that vaping was as harmful as smoking and people who, um, you know, vape and smoke should just continue smoking because there's no benefit to vaping, which from my understanding, the evidence is fundamentally not the case. Um, so if you see those kinds of statements and then you have somebody like me talking to civil servants and politicians trying to explain to them about tobacco harm reduction and why vaping is significantly less harmful than smoking and vaping should be promoted to people who are trying to stop smoking, it's difficult for them to know what to believe. So how do we navigate that? Well, I think we have to do a number of things. I think we, um, we have to keep abreast of the evidence and deliver evidence to policymakers in a digestible way and we, um, we produce a monthly evidence briefing on e-cigarette research for the UK Electronic Cigarette Research Forum, which has been set up by Cancer Research UK, Public Health England and the UK Centre for Tobacco and Alcohol Studies. So we write that every month. It's very accessible and we have many hundreds of subscribers, some of whom are policymakers. So I think that's useful. I think the other thing we can do is try and identify, well, what are the common myths and questions that policymakers have? So there's a very limited understanding about this this evidence you just described around it's not the nicotine that kills people when they're smoking. It's not the nicotine that's harmful. Um, unfortunately, over many decades, we've confused that message. So politicians don't know that in general. They're very worried about nicotine. 
Uh, we've tried to progress a different point of view in the UK, and I think we've made some progress. But we still have in surveys, you know, health professionals, trained health professionals who believe that nicotine causes cancer. So it's going to take us years to deal with that misconception. Um, and then finally, I think as academics, we need to keep doing the research and also be willing to change our minds. Um, you know, if I see strong evidence from the UK that vaping in young people is leading to uh, young people becoming smokers, um, you know, in large numbers, I will obviously change my view that at the moment we don't see an epidemic of vaping in young people and we don't see vaping leading to smoking in young people, certainly in the UK. But I have to keep looking at the data and change my mind and be able to discuss that with policymakers if it, if it does change. So I think those are some of the ways. And also, I'm sure we can learn from other controversial areas of science, climate change, vaccines, you know, all manner of things to, um, to try and provide evidence to policymakers and, and help them, you know, make their decisions. But at the end of the day, sadly, <laughs> it's not just evidence that makes a difference, just a whole bunch of other stuff that affects the decisions that politicians and civil servants make. I think that's a really good point. And also, I think it's really important to highlight what you said there about having the flexibility that if the evidence base changes, then so will the advice. And that's somewhere where if if this divergence in youth vaping rates in the US compared to the UK carries on, then actually it's couldn't it potentially will be able to tell us something really interesting about what are the differences between the UK and the US that are leading to this divergence and that'll help us to understand more about about e-cigarettes. I think that's right and I also think that raises a point that we didn't cover, which is why might these youth data be so different? between the US and the UK. And I, I agree with you completely. If the, if, the, if the picture changes, the data changes in the UK, researchers need to change their, their view and they need to communicate that to policymakers, i.e. if there becomes a problem, we need to tell them there's a problem. The potential explanations for the US and UK differences, I think Juul has a role to play. And you know, lots of young people in the US have been experimenting with Juul and I'm sure it's contributed to that huge rise or, well, big rise, certainly in experimentation with vaping in recent years. Um, but I think the reasons why we're not seeing that in the UK are not just about nicotine content of these products or Juul coming on the market later. I think it's our policy context. So we've basically banned all forms of e-cigarette marketing in the UK following the EU Tobacco Products Directive. And that is not the case in the US. Uh, vaping devices are, are marketed in lots of different ways that young people would never see in the UK. The nicotine content is lower, as we said, but, but I also think that our kind of public discourse is different. So I've done plenty of research with young people and my colleagues have interviewed them about what they think about vaping. And, you know, they hear the messages that we hear. They hear Public Health England saying that uh, vaping is for smoking cessation and it's part of Stoptober and the other campaigns, which show images of middle-aged smokers, you know, using vaporizers instead. And when you talk to kids, many of them think the vaping is for smokers. They might be interested in giving it a try and they maybe do give it a try, but they don't keep trying it, many of them or most of them, unless they're smoking, maybe because of the fact that our context is a bit different. So I think all those things are in the mix and they, they all may explain differences. And as you say, it'll be fascinating to look over time whether those differences are maintained or whether, again, we converge with the US and other countries. The other thing that concerns me about the trend in the US, the, the, the statements from public agencies around um, Juul and uh, nicotine content and addictiveness, um, the alarm about uh, 
the rise in what seems to be a genuine rise in experimentation with e-cigarettes amongst U.S. youth is the implications for what happens with adults. So as a result of, of the rise in numbers of young people uh, vaping, the Food and Drug Administration has taken action. It's removed um, many of the devices from convenience stores, for example, corner shops, um, places where lots of smokers would buy their vaping kit. Um, so it's not available there anymore. They're strongly discouraging marketing of these products. And also, I think just the public information campaigns around things like popcorn lung, which, you know, they claim is linked to vaping. We've never seen a case of that ever, but they still talk about it. And videos which are intended for young people, but actually when you watch them are really quite graphic in, you know, the chemicals that kids inhale when they vape and what that does to the body. And I'm not sure all that evidence is accurate, but it's certainly scary, some of these videos. So it's not just teenagers who see those, it's adult smokers and parents, for example. So the harm perceptions around vaping are much worse in the US than they are in the UK. They're bad in the UK. I mean, we only have around 17% of adults who believe that e-cigarettes are much less harmful than smoking, which is a factual statement that is correct, but only 17% of people believe it. And, you know, the pr proportion of people in the UK who believe vaping is more equally harmful compared to smoking has gone up from 7% in 2013 to 25% in 2018. But as I say, it is worse in the US. So in the latest 2018 NCI Hints survey, which is a big survey, only 2.6% of Americans believe that e-cigarettes were much less harmful than cigarettes. 2.6%. So again, that's a factual statement. Tiny proportion. And the proportion who believe that vaping was more or equally harmful to smoking, when you add up the different categories, was 44% believe that um, vaping is more or equally harmful compared to smoking. So you're almost heading towards half of the US adult population believe that. So I think... But then I guess if, if you've got uh, sort of well-known and well-respected public health figures in the US coming out with that statement, then it's sort of unsurprising that a lot of the US population believe incorrectly that as well. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me. It saddens me greatly yeah. because I think we know how harmful smoking is and there are still millions of American smokers. And if they're anything like British smokers, the smokers that, you know, I've been lucky enough to uh, do studies that involve these smokers is that most of them find it incredibly difficult to stop. And so... Here's this new technology, which actually might help a lot of people. And if they think it's just as bad as smoking, they're not going to try it. You know, in the UK, 40% of smokers have never tried vaping. I don't know what the figure is in the US, but it may well be higher. And that's a tragedy. So in pursuing the protection of youth, protecting youth from using a product, which actually, let's face it, at the end of the day, is hugely less harmful than smoking. And it's questionable how much damage a teenager who tries vaping or even who regularly vapes for a while would do to themselves. I really question that. And it certainly is not damage they would do to themselves if they were smoking instead. So with the, in the, with the pursuit of that goal of protecting youth, the consequence is essentially that, you know, the US and the US policy context may well be sacrificing adult smokers um, and causing, you know, their health service to have to treat those diseases, their families, to have to deal with the consequences of loved ones dying or having smoking-related disease. And, you know, it's a strange situation for the US to be in. And 
we'll, we'll have to see what happens through time. Um, who knows whether the American approach is the wrong one and the UK's is the right one or vice versa. Only time will tell. But um, yeah, I think we're in a very unusual period um, and I hope things improve. Well, I, I feel like that's quite a negative note to wrap it up on. So I'm just going to ask you about what, what do you hope um, <clears throat> is going to happen in the next year in terms of research around e-cigarettes, public messaging around e-cigarettes. So you've already mentioned that there's likely to be a big paper published in the next few weeks that people should keep an eye out for. Um, but what, what else is likely to happen, do you think, over the next year? So I think there'll be more research, not just that paper, but others, which will, will give us more evidence about whether e-cigarettes help people stop smoking. And I think the evidence is pointing in a, in a positive direction. I'm really encouraged by some of the other countries that are taking you know, steps towards um, uh, making harm reduction part of their policies. So Canada is definitely, you know, is now legalized vaping and is going to allow manufacturers to make factual statements about the fact that these products are less harmful than smoking. That's all great stuff. New Zealand has done exactly the same. Other countries may be a bit more permissive in relation to vaping. That would be very exciting. And I also think we've got other good research coming out. So I think we will be able to have more longer-term data about the reduced risk um, to health from vaping compared to smoking, and that will be great. And I think we'll also understand better how these devices work, how we can make the devices better, how we can improve the technology, make them even safer than they currently are, and remove any constituents that might be harmful at all from, from vaping. I think those are developments that we will see in the next few years. And, you know, the, big, the good news story, Susie, which we haven't discussed, of course, is that in both the UK and the US, smoking rates are falling, and they're falling at a brilliant rate Amongst young people, we've never seen such low figures for smoking prevalence in teenagers. And amongst adults in the UK, we now have the second lowest rate of smoking in Europe after Sweden. And in the last few years, we've, we've seen particularly encouraging reductions. And I think there's little doubt in my mind that vaping has contributed to that, along with the other tobacco control policies we have. So I think that's really good news. And I think that tobacco control uh, has been helped by vaping in the UK. Um, and I hope that will continue to be the case. So there's great promise here. And in terms of public health priorities, reducing smoking is still a huge one. But unlike some other topics, as you know, in public health, um, it is a success story so far. And I'm sure it will continue to be. And e-cigarettes are part of that picture. Fabulous. Well, Professor Linda Bold, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great to speak to you. Thanks a lot, Susie. And there we go. Lots of food for thought there. Now, I mentioned on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that I want to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So thanks to everyone who sent me questions so far. If you've got any about drugs that you'd like me to try and answer, please do send them over on Twitter at Suzaphone, join the Facebook group for Say Why to Drugs, or drop me an email. Thanks as always to Adam Richardson for the artwork and Jim Murray for all of his audio wizardry. See you next time. Bye!
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.